If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 5. I always think we're going to cover more ground than we do. You think by now I would learn, but today we're actually going to take half of a verse. Um, we'll read this section to get ourselves in the context, but we're going to look at the second half of verse 18. Let's begin by reading in verse 15, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but wise, making the best use of your time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The second half of verse 18 there, be filled with the Spirit, is what we're going to look at. If I were to tell you that this is the point of your life, you might find it somewhat unhelpful. It's not readily understandable at first glance what Paul means when he says be filled with the Spirit. I tested some of you with this this week. I asked you, I said, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? We're commanded to be filled with the Spirit. I didn't get any quick answers. What I got was pondering and thinking. And it's the question we seek to answer this morning. Because this is a command. Be filled is in the imperative sense. It's a, in the command sense. But it's also in the passive sense, which means that God's going to be the one doing the work. The Spirit's going to be doing the work, but we're commanded to be filled. This is an incredibly important concept to understand because it's how we live. How ought we live as Christians? Last week, we looked at the type of world we live in. That we're to make the best use of our time because the days are evil. Right? We live in a spiritual world. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul's going to get to this point in his letter, but here's what he says. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And last week we asked the question, do you actually believe that you live in the world, a type of world where the devil is scheming against you? And that his best mode of attack on you 
is not necessarily to get you to commit some egregious sin, but rather to get you to waste your time, to lull you to sleep, to live lives that are unaware of his scheming and therefore unable to fight against the evil one with the truth of God's word. Verse 12 says in in Ephesians 6, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness. Do you believe you live in a world that is a present darkness that is not mainly run by politicians and people? but that Satan is the prince of the power of the air, that there's cosmic forces of darkness over this world. You see, if it's just people, powerful people in high positions like politicians, then maybe just people can take them on. But that's not the world the Apostle Paul tells us we live in against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. We all sin. Many struggle with addictions. Many have sorrows that hang heavy over their hearts. All of us, when we're honest, have to admit we're weak. In fact, all of our bodies are breaking down. We have less strength than we did the day before. And we lack wisdom. So much of this world is hard to comprehend and understand. And the question is, is how are we to live? Do we have what it takes to live in the type of world the Bible says we live in? And so Paul calls us to look carefully then how we walk. When Paul talks about how we walk, it means how we behave, how we live. This is a theme throughout this whole letter. It's an incredible thing when we think about how are we to walk and what's going to empower our walk. Uh, as, you, as a person looks at the book of Romans, the letter Paul wrote to the Romans, in the first seven chapters, he speaks of the Spirit five times naming Him by name. Five times. And then chapter 7 is this chapter that is memorable because we can relate to it. This is where Paul says, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but it is sin that lives within me. So I find it to be a law 
that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, taking me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And then he comes to this climactic point where he just says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? What hope does Paul have? That's his experience. That's him being honest with what it's like to live. But hope comes in verse 25. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he gets to chapter 8. He spoke of the Spirit five times, 21 times in chapter 8. He speaks of the Holy Spirit. How are you going to live in light of the reality of our hopelessness in and of ourselves and in our own flesh? And so we're called to look carefully on how we walk. In chapter 2, here's how we walked. He said we were dead in our trespasses in sins in which we once walked. Following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, now get this, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. And we're by nature children of wrath. Here's how we lived. We followed the world system. We followed the devil. And we followed the desires of our own flesh. And Paul says we were dead in our trespasses, in sins. But then God did something. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. So when we were dead, not when we were getting better, not when we were looking for God, but when He effectually calls us, he made us alive, gave us spiritual life, gave us the Holy Spirit. So that in verse 10 of Ephesians 2, he says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So in this new life, we're to walk in new works. In chapter 4, he he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. In verse 17 of chapter 4, he says, we're to no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. In Ephesians 5, he says, we're to walk in love. In verse 2, and we're to walk as children of light in verse 8. That's how we're to live in our new life. Now that a person is born again, once they've trusted Christ, once a supernatural miracle has taken place and spiritual life has been given, we're to walk 
in that life. Behave in that life. And so he tells us to walk not as unwise, but wise. Making the best use of our time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not get drunk with wine. Now, I want you to think about this. If we're going to know what it is to be filled with the Spirit, we need to see the first half of 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So there is a comparison there. Don't do this, but do this. That's what we looked at last week. To become intoxicated is to, the way we use it in uh, our law system, we call it a DUI, driving under the influence. Under the influence. So when a person is drunk, they are under the influence of the alcohol. It begins to change the way they think. And last week we talked about how being under the influence of alcohol, being drunk, is like rolling out the welcome mat to satanic attack. If we live in a spiritual world, and we're to be careful in how we walk, like we just saw last week in our text, the epitome of not being careful would be to open yourself up, roll out the welcome mat for spiritual forces to take over or for your sinful flesh to take over. Morality doesn't increase under the influence of alcohol. Now, it's really interesting. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a medical doctor and also a well-known pastor, on his exposition of this text, here's what he says. It's really interesting. He says, pharmacologically (laughs) speaking, alcohol is not a stimulant, it's a depressant. Take up any book on pharmacology and look up alcohol and you will find always that it is classified among the depressants. It's not a stimulant. Further, it depresses First and foremost, the highest centuries of all, uh, of all in the brain. They control everything that gives man self-control, wisdom, understanding, discrimination, judgment, balance, power to assess everything. In other words, everything that makes a man behave in his very best and highest. The Holy Spirit does, however, or what the Holy Spirit does, however, is exact opposite. If it were possible to put the Holy Spirit into a textbook of pharmacology, I would put it under the stimulants, for that is where he belongs. He really does stimulate. He stimulates our every faculty, the mind, the intellect, the heart, and the will. 
So even scientifically, how alcohol works is it depresses our senses so that the vileness of man is the thing promoted and the thing that comes out. But the Spirit does just the opposite. You can see why it's such a good illustration that Paul gives us. F.F. Bruce says this, Consider now how Paul paints the contrast. The result of drunkenness, he writes, is debauchery. People who are drunk give way to wild, dissolute, and uncontrolled actions. They behave like animals, indeed worse than animals. The result of being filled with the Spirit are totally different. If excess alcohol dehumanizes, turning to are turning a human being into a beast, the fullness of the Spirit makes us more human, for He makes us like Christ. You see how they work in opposite directions. So what does He mean to be filled with the Spirit? We want to answer that question today, and then we want to look at the question of how to be filled with the Spirit. And then next week, we're going to look at the overflow fruit of of being filled with the Spirit. So what does he mean? Let's start by what he does not mean. He is not talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that comes at the time a person is saved. So when a person is converted, they are converted by the Holy Spirit. They're given new life. And the Spirit comes and resides inside the new believer. Never to leave. In the Old Testament, the Spirit came upon Saul, even came into Saul, and then the Spirit was taken away from Saul. After David committed adultery with Bathsheba, he prayed that the Spirit would not be taken from him. But in the New Covenant, we are promised that the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, will never be taken from a believer. He will live inside a believer forever. And so he's not talking about being filled with something we already have. He's not talking about gaining more of the indwelling of the Spirit. We didn't get just a little bit of the Spirit. We got the full Spirit when we trusted in Christ. In John 14, 16, here's how Jesus said it. And I'll ask the Father, and He'll give you another helper. This is right before Jesus dies. He's speaking to His disciples. I will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. Remember that. He's called the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. For you know Him, for He dwells with you, disciples, and He will be in you. So at that point, the Holy Spirit was dwelling with the disciples, 
But it wasn't until Pentecost when the Holy Spirit indwelt believers. He's with you now, but He will be in you. So it's not gaining more of the Spirit. You know, Paul tells us that, that we are God's temple. God's Spirit dwells within you. He, tells, he reminds us in, in 1 Corinthians 6.19 uh, that your body is the temple of the Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You are a vessel purchased by God for the Spirit of God to live in. So you can't get more of the Spirit. It's not getting the Spirit of salvation. It's not gaining more of the Spirit. It's not a second blessing or a zapping as some uh, charismatic or Pentecostal theology might say. That we need to pray that somehow the Holy Spirit falls down on, on us in a mystical way. We don't really understand how, but that it rushes in and takes control. That's not what Paul means when he talks about being filled with the Spirit. So what does he mean? Well, let's dissect this phrase and look at it in the original te uh, text. This is where it's helpful to really understand the mood that it's in, in in the Greek verb. So be filled translates the present passive imperative. So let's just work through that of, of pleru. So it's present. So he's speaking of a continual action. He's calling us to do something continually. It's not a one-time thing. It's a continual thing that he's talking about. That's why it's in the present. It's also in the passive. So this filling isn't going to be empowered by you or by me, but it's going to be done upon us. We are passive in the filling part of it. It's something the Spirit will do inside us. But it's an imperative. It's a command, which means we're to do something. And so you can see in your notes, the charge of this message is this. Be fully led by the Spirit's direction and power continually. That command or that statement is my best attempt to answer the question, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? So let's look at it. Be fully led. If you're going to be filled, then you can't keep part of it and let the Spirit do the other part of it. To be fully led. Our part in being filled with the Spirit is to allow the Spirit to do His work in our life. The Spirit is always leading. The Spirit is always <coughs> speaking to us in His Word. The Spirit is always leading us. And we can quench the Spirit. 
We can live in our flesh. We can follow the course of this world. We can be deceived by the schemes of the devil, but the Spirit is always leading. So be fully led by the Spirit's direction. What does He say? And His power. He doesn't just tell us what to do. He empowers every action He calls us to do. That's His work. He teaches and He empowers So how can I be obedient to the command? Well, we've already seen in this text, Paul says, be careful how you walk. If you forget you live in a spiritual world and you waste your time by numbing your mind with stuff that maybe isn't that bad, but it just wastes your time, weakens you, you're not being strengthened, then it's easy to be filled with your own strength and your own power, which is not much. Your own wisdom is called foolishness, uh, according to Paul in, in, in this letter. And so we're to walk carefully. We're to remember what kind of lives we live, what kind of world we live in. We talked about that a lot last week. Secondly, we're to repent of sin and turn to God. Here's how John Stott says it. He says, to be filled is in the passive voice. Then he be renders it, let the Holy Spirit fill you. There is no technique to learn and no formula to recite. So get this in mind. To let the Spirit fill you is to not lock yourself in the closet and say, God, I'm going to sit here until you fill me or until you empower me. Or I'm going to listen to this worship song and I'm going to dance around and I'm going to wait for you to do something. Stott says there's no technique to learn or formula to recite. Here's what he says. What is essential? If you're taking notes, write this down. What is essential is such, a is such a penitent turning from what grieves the Holy Spirit and such a believing openness to Him that nothing hinders Him from filling us. So what does it look like to allow the Holy Spirit to fill you? It's to turn and repent from everything the Spirit says is sin and that He's against and then to look at what the Spirit says positively and to fully believe it. So to turn from your sin, how are you going to find out what sin is? From the Spirit's words. Where are His words? Who wrote the Scripture? Men were carried along by the Holy Spirit as Scripture was written. God's words through human hands, Peter says, carried along by the Spirit. They're His words. In Galatians 6, when Paul says, walk with the Spirit and not according to your flesh, what he's saying is, 
is live according to the Scripture, not according to what your flesh or your desires tell you you ought to do. So it's a turning from what grieves the Spirit and it's believing and openness to everything that the Spirit teaches us. All right. Thirdly, how can I be obedient to the command to be filled with the Spirit? To die to self daily and be energized with the Spirit. I love the way uh, John MacArthur says this and illustrates it, so, so I'm just going to read it to you. Here's what he says. He says, although every Christian is indwelt, baptized, and sealed by the Spirit, unless he is also filled with the Spirit, so that's something else, he will live in spiritual weakness, retardation, frustration, and defeat. So you can have the Spirit living in you and live in spiritual weakness, is what he's saying. He says, the continuous aspect of being filled, the present tense, involves a day-by-day, moment-by-moment submission to the Spirit's control. The passive indicates that it's not something that we do, but that we allow to be done in us. The wisdom doesn't come from us. The power doesn't come from us. The allowing it comes to us. You can live according to your flesh. Or you can live according to the Spirit. The Spirit has never left you, Christian. The Spirit's always there. But often we quench the Spirit. And then here's what he says. The, this, is, this is MacArthur still. The filling is entirely the work of the Spirit himself but he works only through our submission. The present aspect of the command indicates we cannot rely on a past filling, nor live in expectation of a future filling. We can rejoice in past fillings, and we can hope in in future fillings, but we can only live in the present filling of the Spirit. All right? That's important. And then he says this, to be filled with the Spirit involves confession of sin, surrender of will, intellect. So this is surrender. Think of this. The surrender of the will. That's what you want to do. The intellect, the body, time, talent, possessions, desires. It requires the death to selfishness, the slain of all self-will. When we die to self, the Lord fills us with His Spirit. And then he points to John the Baptist. He says the principle stated by John the Baptist applies to the Spirit as well uh, as to Christ. He must increase, but I must increase. To be filled in this sense is to be totally dominated and controlled, it is the most important sense for believers. It is in the direct contrast to uncontrolled drunkenness and dissipation. 
So the idea is it's death to self. It's total domination of the Spirit of God on our life. So many Christians struggle with habitual sin. Addictions. Drunkenness is just one example. Pornography addictions. And if you gave them truth serum and you asked them, do you believe you can be forgiven for your addiction or for your sin that just continually seems to hold on? Usually, they'll say, well, I do believe God can forgive me. But then if you ask them, do you believe that you can have the type of power to put to death this sin and not do it anymore, they'll usually say, if they're honest, no, I think I'm going to struggle with this forever. And if they've been living the majority of their life in their own power, in their own wisdom, in their own strength, they're right. We have, we don't have the power to conjure up, to get control of our life. We live in a spiritual world. But we do have the Holy Spirit. And He does give us the power to put to death the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Spirit. That's what Romans 8 says. So many Christians doubt the power of God because they don't know what it means to be filled with the Spirit, to live a life where you've died to yourself and you've gone to Christ. Let me give you an example. Addictions are embarrassing. Nobody wants to come into my office and say, you know, Sam, I have a pornography addiction or I have a drug addiction or I have an alcohol addiction. That's embarrassing. But you want to know what it looks like to be led by the Spirit? It's to die to yourself. It's to say, I don't have the power in and of myself. I don't have the strength. I'm not going to hide my sin in order to protect my identity or my standard in front of people. I'm going to admit who I am. I'm a sinner. And sin's overpowering me. And I need help. And so being led by the Spirit, one of the first steps is saying to other people, other Christians, help me. I have a problem. I need help. I need to be filled with the Spirit of God. I need to know what He says. I need His power in my life. And if you do that, you will get help. But what keeps us so often in habitual sin is the unwillingness to die to yourself and to turn your life over to the Spirit of God. And by the way, when you're exposed 
and you say, I got a problem and I need help, you want to know what other people actually think? Because they're all sinners too. When they see a sinner admit, this is who I am, and I need the grace of Christ in my life, they are encouraged by you, not discouraged. In fact, what discourages people is when we pretend to be something we're not. And we hide it. That's what discourages people. So just want to show you that the open door to die to yourself, to, to in, in a sense, expose yourself is one of the practical ways you would be led by the Spirit to give your life over to Him. All right, and fourthly is, is to obey His words. So this text in Ephesians, Paul has a parallel text in Colossians. And I want you to see it because it's helpful in helping us answer this question. So our text says, Paul says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. He says, be filled with the Spirit. Then he goes into addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks. So then you have thanksgiving here. Always and for everything to God the Father. All right? Now look at Colossians. Here's what he says. It's, it's similar, but different. In Colossians 3.15, he says this. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. What do you think the peace of Christ ruling in your hearts is? Probably the Spirit of Christ? It's ruling. Who rules? God rules. God dominates. This word filled literally means like, like a sail is filled with wind. It moves the boat. That's one way this verb is used. Another way is when meat is filled, it's the same word used here, with salt. The salt permeates the meat. It dominates the meat. It preserves the meat. The idea is, is that the Spirit comes into our life and it permeates us. It moves us. It dominates us. And in Colossians here, he says, let the peace of Christ rule, dominate, have control of your life. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called and be thankful. So there's thanksgiving. And then he says this in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So what did he replace be filled with the Spirit with? In Colossians, he replaced it with let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You see that? 
To have the Spirit dwell in your hearts to fill you up is to let the Word of God dwell in your hearts. It's not some mystical thing. F.F. Bruce says this, we must never separate the Spirit and the Word. To obey the Word and to surrender to the Spirit are virtually identical. Let me say that again. F.F. Bruce says, we must never separate the Spirit and the Word. To obey the Word, that's one thing, and to surrender to the Spirit are virtually identical. And he points us to Colossians' text. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. All right? Now this shouldn't surprise us. Jesus promised that when he was going to ascend into heaven, that his words were going to stay with them. Half the New Testament still needs to be written. And it needs to be written by Christ through human hands. How is He going to do it? John 14.25 says, These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. He told the apostles, everything I have to teach human beings are going to be taught even though I ascend to heaven, I'm sending my helper and those apostles are going to remember everything Christ taught because the Spirit of God was going to move them as they wrote the Scripture. And He was going to direct them as to how the church should be structured and what the church should do and how Christians should live and what's going to come in the future. Jesus said, the Spirit is going to teach you everything I want to teach you. In John 16, verse 12, he says this, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. So to be filled with the Spirit, what does it look like? It's to know and obey the Word of God. Isn't it so comforting? If you want to open your life up to the Spirit's filling, it's not going into a closet and shutting the lights off and reciting some incantation. If you want to drive the devil and his demons out of your house, it's not by walking around your house and yelling at the devils and the demons. It's by opening your Bible and reading and believing what the Spirit says. Because the only power the devil has is in his lies. To be filled with the Spirit is to submit yourself to the Word's of God. I want to finish with an illustration that I didn't come up with. This is an illustration that John MacArthur gave that I just couldn't do better on. 
I try to be unique and come up with my own, but sometimes I'm just going to tell you and, and, and use it straightforward. So here's what he said. He said, the Christian's life is like a glove. The Christian's life is like a glove. How foolish would it be for a glove to be sitting here and tell itself, let's go do wonderful things. Let's go build something today. Let's go help somebody today. Let's go pick up the church and wash the windows. The glove could sit there all day long and say, let's go do this. And it would be a pointless thought. Because just like Jesus said in John 15, when he tells Christians that the branches need to abide in the vine, he says, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. And it's the same with the Spirit. Our lives are like a glove that unless it's empowered, it can't do anything good. Do you realize you cannot please God apart from faith in His Word? Faith in Him. You can't, it's impossible to please God apart from faith. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. Do you realize that when you believe the Scripture by faith, you, you don't just know it and understand it, but you say, that's my only hope. That is turning your life over to the Spirit of God. And the Spirit is like the hand that comes into the glove and does many amazing things. And after all those things are done, how foolish would it be for the glove to say, look at all that I did. In a sense, he gets all the glory, right? We're the vessel that has been redeemed by Christ, bought with a price. He teaches, he leads, he empowers. And we're not to quench him. We're to turn to Christ, turn to the Spirit and say, have control. 